Well, welcome uh, this evening to this conversation hosted by the Royal Academy at Masterpiece London. I'm Thomas Marks, uh, writer and critic, uh, and I'm joined, I'm delighted to be joined by Rebecca Salter, president of the Royal Academy. Um, Rebecca is an artist um, whose meditative, meticulous work um, has been shown at the Yale Center for British Art in London, in Japan, in uh, Germany as well. Um, we're going to talk through Rebecca's career, her practice, um, how she balances her work alongside her role as the president of the Royal Academy. I think I'm probably not going to give a huge <laughs> biographical oh. intro because I think things It'll will come, come up yeah. and, uh, as we talk. So why don't we start off by talking yeah. about actually where you started out. You, you studied ceramics, Rebecca. I did. At Bristol Polytechnic. What, how did you choose that as the medium that you were going to study? And, and yeah, where did it well, go? <laughs> anyway, very nice to be having a conversation with you, Tom. Um, so back in those days when you did a foundation course, you were able to spend a few weeks doing photography, a few weeks doing ceramics and all those wonderful techniques that you'd not been able to do at school. And I really enjoyed ceramics. And so that's, that's the direction I went in. And at the point that I graduated in, from Bristol, I still enjoyed ceramics. And so, and I think we're going to come on to talk about this, I decided to go to Japan to take it a step further. But then, once I arrived in Japan, things, things changed, and I went off in a different direction. We, we've spoken before, and I, so I'm going to press you a bit harder <laughs> this time. <laughs> because you know, I want to know a bit more about ceramics, what it was for you. Were, were you looking at things by Bernard Leach, by British um, Studio Potters? Not, no, because I've never, ever wanted to make a teapot. So I was looking at things, I mean, when we were students, amazingly, when we went to visit Lucy Ree, which was extraordinary. So I was looking at people like Lucy Ree, Hans Koper. So that sort of generation of people who were moving towards sculptural ceramics. And that was, I mean, I never did learn how to make a teapot. Um, and so that ultimately became the problem for me because I reached the stage where I thought, well, actually, if you're not going to use clay to make something practical, if you're going to use clay to make a sculpture, then why is it called ceramics? Why aren't you in the sculpture department? And I, that's why, ultimately why I gave up. And, and you, so you weren't making pots, you weren't no. throwing anything, no. you weren't making no. tea bowls and things, no. No. but you were building with slabs of clay I, <coughs> and so, more interested in the surface than the... Um, so when I, for my degree show in Bristol, I, um, I built sawdust kilns, which means they were fired at an incredibly low temperature. And actually it means they would go back to mud if they got wet. Um, and then I made, so I was firing very thin pieces of clay and then making them actually into things like screens. So I was always struggling with scale because I always wanted to do something bigger and then it would crack or the kiln wasn't big enough. Um, so there was always a sort of mismatch with what I wanted to do, what you could do with clay. And ultimately that led me to stop doing it altogether. When, when you left Bristol Polytechnic, mm. am, I, am I right in thinking you 
You threw all of your <laughs> I did. work into I the creek. I threw it in the River Avon, like yes. Like Colston statue, <laughs> rolling it into the creek. And except it's still, mine's still there. Um, oh, I don't know, it's mud. But yes, I threw it away. Yep. And none of my throwings... So my degree show I threw in the, in the River Avon, um, and it went back to mud. You were and the then... Michael Landy of your day. <laughs> yeah, I did it before. And then the work I'd done in Japan, I left behind um, in a sort of shed attached to the scruffy old building I'd been living in in Japan, and that blew down in a typhoon, and so that was all smashed. So none, hardly any of it survives. Well, I think we will talk a bit more later about things that are destroyed or lost in your work, mm. and that, that is almost part of your creative process in, in some ways. But let's stick with sort of introducing you biographically. 1979, mm. you moved to Japan. Yeah. How, how long is that after your time at Bristol? And, and <clears throat> what is it that spurs the decision to go to Japan? So I graduated in the summer of 1977, and nobody in this room except <laughs> person is old enough to remember what 1977 was like. And it was, you know, there were strikes, there was rubbish piling up in the street. I mean, it was pretty like, grim. It was like 2022. Like 2022. Pretty gr so the late 70s, in terms of trying to survive as an artist coming out of art school, were really tough. Um, and, of course, all my contemporaries were looking to New York and Amer desperately trying to think, how can we get to America? Because New York was still the centre of the art world. And for some reason, I decided I wanted to go in the other direction. The reason probably was that I wrote my dissertation um, on the, the tale of Genji Scrolls, the... 10th century, 9th century novel. Um, and so I had this head full of sort of romantic images of mm. Japan from the Kyoto, particularly from the 10th century. And I just decided I wanted to go to Japan. But it then took, and again, this is pre-internet, but you know, you have to find an art school, find out how to get into an art school. So I sent off letters and nothing came back. And then ultimately, I honestly don't remember how it happened now, but I got a place in the art school. Then I needed money to go, and then I got a Levy Hume scholarship to go. You needed a, a, a Japanese citizen as a sponsor for a visa, and of course I'd never met a Japanese person. Anyway, ultimately it all lined up, and I flew off in 1979. I mean, you, you used the word romantic. Was it, was it a sense of, you know, pretty surprising adventure. You were seizing an adventure there. Yeah. It, it wasn't going a well-trodden path. No. Were there any models of people who you'd seen no, going to Japan, artists who'd been influenced by no, Japan? I didn't know anybody. And of course, I arrived in Japan and I didn't know anybody. I didn't speak Japanese. I mean, I'd gone to the only evening class in London at the time, which was at City Lit. And I'd learnt very little, to be honest, because it wasn't particularly well taught. So, I mean, it was a massive adventure, and the sort of adventure you probably tell your parents about after you've done it. <laughs> but off I went, basically. So you went to Japan to train further as yeah. a ceramicist, if, yeah. if I'm not wrong. And well, I specifically went to, because I'd been doing a lot of low-fired ceramics, I specifically went to look at um, raku tea bowls, although I'd never made a tea bowl. And there is an exhibition at the moment, which I haven't seen yet, but Annalie Judah, which combines tea bowls by the current Raku mm. master, and Malevich, which I think will be very interesting. So I went to study that. Um, 
Yeah. You went for two years, you stayed Well, it six was initially years. one year. My scholarship was one year, and I, I sort of said, well, this is fine, but actually it's pretty hard to learn the language and learn everything you need to know in a year. Um, so they very kindly extended it for a year. So I had two years in the university, and then I had four years just doing my own work. And, and you, you he headed not to Tokyo, but, but to, to Kyoto. Kyoto. Quite a, a city that's preserved traditions, yeah. um, but and also had some avant-garde It had some avant-garde, but of course, Raku is at the very heart of the tea ceremony. And when we're talking about Kyoto traditions and really sort of traditional traditions, the tea ceremony is way up there. So it was, it was quite a hard difficult world to get into. I mean, I think, uh, and I'll just say for the audience and, and the audience online that we're showing a selection of works from across Rebecca's career. Some earlier works from, I think, the mid-80s yeah. right, through, right through a few from the 90s, right through to, to far more recent works. But I'm still interested I, 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 to, to delve into this. Mm. I mean, in a sense, it sounds like you went to Japan as a researcher yes. rather than necessarily someone who was going to be a maker. What, mm. what were you making in Japan? So I was... Um, so my scholarship was to go and research the history of Raku. Um, and so I was trying to do, you know, proper research and then also build... I built two kilns so that I could make, and I collected, you know, one of, so for example, the black raku tea bowls use a stone that's in the river that runs through the middle of Kyoto. So I get the stones and I crush them and I make all the glazes and then I fire them. And the same with the red raku bowls, you collect earth and you do. So I did all that stuff. Um, and I was, um, I actually, I mean, in the first year, I learned to, <laughs> to speak Japanese and write it a bit, but I also learned to read Japanese so I could read um, the contemporary books, but also the older records were pre-war Japanese, so I learned to read pre-war Japanese so I could do earlier research. So I did all that I was sort of required to do for my scholarship, but as I was doing it, I realised that, you know what, I really didn't want to make tea bowls. <laughs> I'm, I'm staying. I'm staying with Japan because of that sense of, I, 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 you know, it's something that you've often spoken about. Mm. Uh, your research into Japanese culture, Japanese art, calligraphy continued even after you you'd come back from Japan in the, yeah. in the mid '80s. When did you start learning the calligraphic mark making and how to use the the brushes? So. When I first arrived in Japan, I actually lived with a Japanese family for a year, and it was my Japanese family that taught me everything. They taught me to speak, to read, and to read pre-war Japanese. And my Japanese mother, as I call her, um, she took me off to flower-arranging lessons that she went to, and she also took me to calligraphy lessons. So I went off to learn calligraphy with her. And, of course, you're in this position whereby you're learning how to write characters, but actually at that stage you still can't read them. You know, you know what they are. And so you're trying to understand the deeper meaning of the word before you even really understand it. And it was incredibly difficult for me to develop any kind of sense as to whether this was any good or not. Because normally when you draw something as an artist, you think, well, that's okay. But when you're working in that calligraphic tradition, you look at it and you think, well, it looks 
okay to me, but what do I know? And then you show it to the teacher and she gets her sort of red brush out and covers it in red and you say, oh, well, obviously it's not very good. But you don't know why it's not very good yet. It's like because, learning because a foreign language. But you're learning... It's the accent or the nuance of how thick your stroke is. How the strokes is, and, and what sort of speed you're working in. And also the start... You know, I was learning from a particular teacher who had a particular style, so to some extent you would be following her style, but to follow her style, which was slightly deconstructed, you also ought to know how you should do it properly, which, of course, I didn't know at that stage. So it was a very interesting experience because, of course, you're completely outside any kind of parameters that you've functioned in before. And, and you're outside the world of what's going on in the London art yeah. scene at that time, yes. and you're outside... <laughs> you know, the macho New York art scene yep. as well. And well, also what, I mean, looking back on it, I realised that also, I mean, if you look at the Gutai movement, which is now reaching mm. more prominence, you know, prominence in the West, you know, I was sort of at the tail end of, I mean, it had finished by then, by the sort of early 70s, but, you know, this was the late 70s. So there were those sort of resonances still around. So... I mean, thinking about some of the works that we've been showing on screen, mm. I mean, this work that is one. an early work yes. that, <clears throat> that I can see some of the perhaps inheritance of what it is to paint on screens, yeah. but not, not so much just painting on screens, spatial arrangements that yeah. are created by screens. Well, this, this series, a lot of the work I did in the... In the sort of my last two years in Japan came out of... I started to do translation work for a, um, a Japanese professor who... I mean, actually, he was really a professor of French literature, but he'd become very interested in... I don't know what you'd call it in English, but in Japanese it's called Nihonjinron, which is like theory of being Japanese. And it was very popular. Um, in, the, in the 80s, Japan was powering ahead economically and every airport bookshop was full of books saying you know Japan is number one you know the west is finished America's had it and all those books so within Japan there was a huge amount of debate it was a sort about, of nationalist critique it was, though, it yeah. was sort of um, well how did that happen why are we so special what's so different about Japan and he um became one of the leading sort of commentators in that field and I used to go to all his talks that he gave in Japan. And then he was invited, I think he was invited to go and teach in Canada. So he needed all his lectures to be in English. So I translated them all for him. And we spent a lot of time discussing the use of space, both sort of domestic space in Japan and particularly divisions within sacred space and how... Um, for example, you know, subtle differences in how important and sacred the space is can be as, as much as sort of the different size of gravel or something, or a kind of different rope. And, you know, if you think of that kind of sacred space when you come from kind of effectively Westminster Abbey, um, it's just a completely different mindset. And so I did a whole series of works of which that drawing was one, which was about very, very subtle differences of texture and colour and marks. So, so I suppose this, this approach to mark-making and to the meaningfulness mm. of individual marks, the possibilities of chance as you make marks, 
is something of your legacy of that time. But I wonder also to ask a big question, really, whether, in a sense, one of the things you learned in that six-year period or you carried forward as your work developed and as you became really a painter, printmaker, mm. working as uh, two-dimensional uh, um, works, is, is a mindset, whether, whether that's what really had changed. I mean, would, would you say that? I think there's a, there's a mind, a completely different mindset, attitude to materials, an attitude to surface. But before that, <clears throat> um, just to go back to what we were saying about calligraphy, um, there is a fundamental difference between the line in the East and the line in the West because um, the highest art form in the East is the calligraphic line. And effectively, that's a word. And so the line has an inherent meaning to it, whereas the Western line is kind of sort of descriptive. It's sort of outlining something to make itself something. So that is a really essential difference in, in the line. Um, so that I still find interesting. Um, what did you say? Well, well, well I suppose <laughs> I was carrying the, the sort of materials. mindset. Yes. And, and to, to some degree, mm. it's to allow me to almost fast forward to where we yeah. are now. And, and I, we, I do want to come back to these mm. ideas of abstraction and, and materiality. But to sort of think about you know, how you now approach making works in, in the studio, to think about, yeah. to give, give our audience a sense in, in, in which, you know, how do you approach mm. the making of art? What's so I have moved almost completely to painting, but I sort of moved, I mean, I dropped the third dimension with ceramics and I moved into two dimensions and I made that move using Japanese paper. And there is, again, a fundamental difference between Japanese paper and Western paper in that the fibres are much longer. And so you can make the paper wet and it doesn't distort in the same way and then it dries again. So it's incredibly versatile. But for me, one of the most important parts of it was that it's translucent, the thin paper is translucent. So you can actually treat that substrate as an object so you can work on the back and on the front. And whatever you see is almost being mediated through the fibers of the paper, which I still enjoy working on Japanese paper, but yet again, you come up against the problem of it, you know, only comes in sheets this big, and then you have to frame it, which means putting glass on it, and that's difficult. Um, so I wanted to find a way to move onto, I work primarily now on linen, and how do I get that feeling of making an object on both sides, but using um, linen? So one of the pictures that comes up on this screen, I've actually, the, the entire painting was done on the back and then I turned it round at the last minute and made the back the front. So you get the feeling that something's beyond and behind. And, and just to sort of place you in the studio yeah. uh, without maybe fetishising <laughs> the studio too much, um, you, work, you work in North London, um, quite a light studio, light studio quite. Obviously, obviously, and we'll come to the RA, how you mm. balance your roles, but when you're in the studio, is everything else shut out? Are you only Fairly working on so. one, we'll yeah. call them paintings, quote-unquote, but one work at a time, making I tend It tends marks. to be, it depends, sometimes I'm working on ones which, which get very wet, and then you have to let them dry, so I work on, but I tend to work on one at a time, and... People think the studio is very tidy, but I never show them what it's like behind the scenes in the drawers. <laughs> it's not tidy at all. Um, 
But yes, I mean, it is pared back, I suppose. Because when you're dealing with this level of sort of delicacy of mark making, you can't have too much sort of extraneous noise. So time, I guess, is one of the subjects of, of is, the work because yeah. some of these works, and specifically perhaps some of the more recent ones, mm. have thousands, if not tens of thousands of tiny marks that's on the them. That's the one that's on the back, by the way. That's the one that was all done on the reverse. And that's, so that's the front of the painting is the back. And you're making the mark that is the same but different each yes. time yes. again. Yeah. I mean, are you, are you totally in that space and time of the mm. painting when you're doing it? Do you have to block everything you else out? You have to block out? everything else out because if you try and... If you, um, if you even for a minute think, if I can finish this section by two o'clock, then the nature of the marks change. So you have to go for each individual and think, well, if this takes me all week, so be it. And you have to completely give yourself over to that process. What does the first mark look like? How do you decide what the first mark is? Then? Well, I do a lot of sort of um, messing around with sort of... I mean, I don't actually use traditional brushes. I use sort of... I buy a lot of things in pound shops that I work with. I saw you... I mean, you use, what, <laughs> cocktail sticks cocktail or...? Cocktail sticks and chopsticks, anything I find to paint with. Um, because what I like about those sort of devices, if that's the right word, is that there is that element of um, jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you can never... You can never be 100% sure that the next mark is going to be like the one before. And again, to some extent, that goes back to... If we go back to calligraphy, um, you know, if you are a master of calligraphy, you... You know, you practice for decades, and then you reach the stage when you can do it perfectly, and then the most important thing you've got to do at that point is start to not do it perfectly, because otherwise it dies. So that's that's what this, the the character of is wabi. The, well, the it's sort of unlearning, mm. and it's keeping also that element of not a hundred percent control, and also, I mean, I was once told that. In the East, you should always leave something in a picture which, which is not 100% right. Because that, it's from that bit that's a little bit wrong that you, that's the seed of the next. So basically, perfection is your enemy, sort of. How, how, do, you, how do you know friend. when something has gone so wrong that you've made a mistake? <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> I mean, there are occasions when it goes, when it goes, I mean, there are not, that many, but there are occasions when I think it's not. And then I, then I tend to do things that are really quite radical, like sort of put black all over it and start again, or pour a bucket of water over it or something and see what happens. I mean, thinking about, thinking about repetition, you know, it's, it's... One way to think about repetition is that it, it creates a different... It can create a different mental state. Mm. So if you think about a chant or a song, when a poet is using yes. a refrain, typically that's been the possibilities of repeating something mm. actually almost can have an animistic effect on the world. If you say something enough times over and over, if someone says a spell yes. in a children's story, it mm. changes 
something in the world. Mm. I mean, is there a is there a sense that you're entering a meditative state, a cat not catatonic or a? I think it's. I think there's a difference between repetition, where where you kind of carry on doing the same thing, whereas I think my kind of repetition is actually. I don't know, the action is the same, but the thing is different. So, you know, you're keeping a difference between what you're doing rather than... It's not copying, it's repeating the action. It's like rhyme rather yeah. than... So rhyme where something is similar but different, but different. each time. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Let's let's talk a little bit more about, about your materials and, and the quality of them. Mm. I mean, do you... You're always looking for new materials to challenge yourself, or do you feel like you've you've settled on materials now? You said you're mostly working on linen, yeah. Sometimes on Japanese paper. I quite like um, um, I quite like not to have too many options. So I really um, so when I had a residency at the Albus Foundation back in 2003, which was a wonderful three months in a wood, on, um, in a studio in the wood, actually on the grounds of the foundation, um, with only occasional access to a car, it meant that I had to work with what was there. And I really quite liked, you know, running out of everything which happened one Sunday afternoon and actually going through the cupboards and thinking, oh, what do I could paint with that? And I like those kind of restrictions. And, and the... I mean, the materials you work with are often quite delicate, quite, yeah. quite fragile, and yet you, you have your mark making can be very delicate. But you also sometimes will do something, if not quite violent, quite dramatic yes. to, to the yeah. work. I mean, are you prepared? You're prepared for surfaces to break yeah. or to, mm. to, for water to soak through for. You're and not. I, you're not like. You're not like not, Alberto Burri. You're not trying to burn <laughs> holes or create. Oh, well, I might. You know. you, but sometimes you have. You have. I have done burnt in. ones. Yes, I have yeah. done burnt ones. I quite like. Um, it's a sort of sad, slight sort of sadness you get when you had something that was quite nice and then you do something else and it's not quite as nice. And I quite like that moment of sadness when you mourn what you had, which seemed okay if only you hadn't gone and done something on top of it. But then you've got the thing, well, okay, I've done something, now what am I going to do with it? And then I quite like the fact that uh, I'm the only one that knows what's under there. <laughs> but is that, <laughs> is that to say wrong? that it could have been finished before? Yes, it could have been finished before, but you always think, oh, what, I wonder what would happen if I did that and then you think oh well I shouldn't have done that really because these works do take these can take weeks I mean to, months, to make that months months so so so, to, so they're to very take high risk because you do all that mm. work and then it one falls and you've you've lost it but the risk isn't necessarily you know, they have quite a dare I say calming appearance if people do. take the time yes. to come to them yeah. just to to engage with their limitations their restrictions mm. And their surfaces, and the possibilities of—I mean, do you want that to be people to people to be able to well, I, suspend I, their attention? Yes, in I them. think there's a link between the time they take me to do and the time I'd like people to look at them. But I think we're operating in a world where attention spans are quite short. 
and also they're not particularly good on screen as you know they're difficult they you lose so much of the we've we've talked about this you're not an artist who makes art for instagram (laughs) although you do have a really interesting instagram (laughs) account which has increasingly moved towards your photographs yes which is just captioned morning evening possible picture of a dog okay (laughs) but but that's you're looking you you're for the photos you're taking yeah and they are similar to photos you took at the Yale Centre for mm. British Art. They have a quality of looking for simple patterns simple off patterns. a monochrome. Yeah. I mean, what are some of the recent things that you have put on Instagram? Oh, they're mostly um, things I come across. You know, I don't know. One, one of the recent ones was that, you know, my sink in the studio over the 20 years has got this wonderful pattern. It's rivulets. Think, yeah, and, and you just think, oh, that's... But that was, I mean, interestingly... A lot of that came out of um, the first few weeks of the first lockdown. Because what I I discovered this really, it was a really strange experience. Because I would go on my sort of daily allowance, which was to go out on your, you were allowed out, weren't you, once a day on your bike. So I would go out on my bike. And I may or may not have ended up at the studio. Um, (laughs) Were you allowed to do that? Was I allowed to do that? I was was a key worker. I was going to my workplace. Um, And I suddenly rediscovered the sort of looking which I remembered having as a as a student when I was on my on foundation when you did the photography, you know for two weeks of photography, and they gave you a camera, and I'd not had a camera before. And also, I remembered that in those days, because you didn't have that access to cameras, it was just incredible to be just looking in that way. And bizarrely, that just suddenly reappeared in lockdown, and it, I'd, I'd have gone past that fence every one day of, for One years. of the things that you're seeing, dare I say it, is, is things that look, quite like some of well, your yeah. work yeah. and mm. you know you're seeing patterns repetition yeah. I mean, what is a pattern if not mm. uh, repetition with difference yeah. and texture. you're you're seeing texture mm. and, and and monochrome but also the variations of gray and yes. and, and the possibilities yes. of of color not used exuberantly but mm. used very carefully and sparingly yeah. Yeah. um i i mean i see landscapes in some of those photos which allows me to shift <laughs> questions because you, you have got another... It's not another practice, but there is something that you, you, you do. You do take a sketchbook I do. to the Lake District so, every year and have done for quite a few years, mm. and you fill it in a certain... I fill it in a certain... So, every, so week, every year we go back to the same part of the same place in the Lake District for about, I think, 13 more years now. And I just take a sketchbook... And something very, I only, in, in the beginning, I, I actually used to take a full set of watercolours, but then I got completely overwhelmed by setting it all up and then it rains and it got too difficult. So now I t- just take Japanese calligraphy ink, which, I mean, people often ask why I don't work in colour, and it's partly because there are so many colours in Japanese Eastern calligraphy ink that I haven't got to grips with them, let alone anything else. Um, and then I just use either my fingers or a stick or anything I find, and I just do really, really quick, you know, 30-second But they are sketches, sketches, of, sketches of the weather, the atmosphere, the place. They're sketches of the weather and the atmosphere, but the, the, even though it sounds boring, but going back to the same place every time means that your knowledge of the landscape deepens every year. And so 
it's like meeting an old friend. You can pick up where you left off. And you don't have to go through all the niceties at the beginning. Whereas if I went to a different part of the Lake District, I'd have to start to get to know those mountains again. But I, I know that you have in the past done landscape or, or, or sketched... There was a London sketchbook there at was, one point. There was, yeah. You've sketched in Yemen, in Yemen. when you were mm. able to travel to, to Sana, And they're not... They're not I'd say they're not like Bomberg doing no. doing mm. the the mud architecture and mm. so on. They're more abstracted those yeah. sketches. What what do you feel that is the relationship between these sketches that have figurative moments and mm. and the work that we're showing on the screen and you work in the studio? Um it's very, unfortunately, it's very specific. So there are a lot of places where I wish I could do a sketchbook, but actually I don't just appeal to me, like the south of England. <laughs> Sounds awful, but, you know, I want to go north. Um, I went to um, north of Norway again, which was wonderful. Um, it's if there's something that just fascinates me about, whether it's the landscape or in Yemen, it was the extraordinary architecture. Um, and then it's just that joy, very briefly, of going back to the, just looking and seeing and drawing. And then I don't ever look at them again when I take them back to the studio. I just put them away in the cupboard. So there's a, there's a freedom there. And, and perhaps we can come on to think about just in terms of... I said we'd come back to abstraction. This is mm. a bit of a leak, but you, you, I suppose you're, you're, you're playing with... You're flirting with figuration in those sketchbooks. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas here... I mean, it would be easy for people to... to simplify art history and say, okay, this is a type of, of abstraction that mm. comes out of, what, a New Mexico tradition yeah. or Agnes mm. Martin and mm. so on, but you're not really working in, in that tradition no. of, of abstraction. You're not working in the tradition where... I don't know where they've The come line from, is the honest. end in itself no. or, or, or sort of Bryce Marden and mm. so on mm. and... Well, the Abex thing where, where what's happening within the plane is somehow answering a, a question of its own making. No. I mean, I, I think they come out of, of the strange sort of genesis, really, of this whole business of going to Japan, doing one thing, and then unlearning it and learning something else, but coming away with an attitude to materials that is... I mean, I, I think there is a different attitude to the surface because, um, again, in the East, you've got an absorbent surface in paper or silk and water-based pigments. So the surface you're working with is, is receptive automatically, where if, if you think of a Western primed canvas, the whole point is that the paint just kind of sits on it. And they don't really have a great deal to do with each other except one is supporting the other. But, you know, in the Eastern tradition, they fuse and become an object. So I think... I mean, I still think I am actually making objects, but they mm -hmm. just happen to look like a painting. Some of those American artists... Mm. I mean, in your big Yale catalogue, there are sort of comparative images. There's a Grey Richter or a Grey Jasper Johns. Yeah. Um, there's possibly an Agnes Martin. I mean, do you, do you feel an affinity with any of 
those artists in terms of the version, what they're trying to do with... with... I think probably Agnes Martin the most. And I think, I mean, that's obviously the work, but also I really um, like reading the way she writes about the process of her, of her work. Um, I like that there's a very um, personal and very individual... I mean, I feel when she writes about her work, I always feel that she, as if she's writing about her work for herself rather than for an audience. And I think that it's very reflective, her writing, which do I find... You, do you write? I don't, no. Not about my work, no. <laughs> not if I could help it. <laughs> I, I mean... I need people like you. I could, <laughs> I could ask you your ab job. about your work <laughs> for another 20 minutes and then all the time would be, would be gone, but... I want to ask you about what's happened in the last sort of five years of your career as well, because it also strikes me that there's a contrast between this work that demands time. It demands time of you mm. to make it, and it demands time of anyone approaching it as a viewer to engage with it and to, to, to find a, a way in which you can think about the marks, about its objectness, mm. about its sparing colours but you became the keeper of the Royal Academy Schools in 2017. Yeah. And in 2019, you were elected as the first, first woman uh, to be president of the Royal mm. Academy, and not before time. 250-something <laughs> um, years. But without, without pressing <laughs> home on that point, I mean, the president of the Royal Academy, it's, it's not just a ceremonial position, is it? No. And certainly not, not during a, a pandemic. pandemic. <laughs> No. So, so how have you found that as a, a as a way? First of all, in terms of just balancing mm. your your identity as an artist yeah. with your identity as president of the Royal Academy. Well, it's been pretty punishing because, as you say, the work I do requires uninterrupted time, which I've had next to none um, since I was elected. Um, the only upside of the way I work is that, um, well, I don't know whether why, but I mean, I am able to sort of focus and do so. so. I mean, I was in my studio this morning for an hour, so I can go there. And because of the way I work, you know, for some people, you'd have just mixed the paint. But because of the nature of the way I work, I can pick something up for an hour and leave it. So there's a sort of distillation, the time that is available. Yeah. yeah. has to be a very intense It has intense to be very, in, very intense. Um, I mean, in terms of being president, my problem is I've no idea what it's like being president not in a crisis. So I have no idea, really. Um, you're a keeper. Um, I mean, you were elected in 2014 as a, as as a royal academician, as, yeah. a, as a, one of the printmaking cohort. Yeah. And, and yet, you know, you, you really said you see yourself as, a, yeah. as an object maker. I know. Um, but the categories are very very fluid, because, I mean, Grayson Perry is elected as a printmaker. My predecessor, Christopher Lebrun, also elected as a printmaker. So the categories are... So if you want to be a place. president of the Royal Academy, <laughs> you, need to, be you need to come in as a printmaker. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, a mafia. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me, I mean, you're... In terms of some of the challenges, I mean, there are, there are a lot of different parts of the Royal Academy. Mm. Sometimes there have been silos but there is a managerial aspect to, to what you're doing there's yeah. a, a figurehead aspect and a representation you're representing mm. other artists but you're also representing the institution to 
yep. I suppose, government to its audience mm -hmm. and so on. Is that something that you felt automatically comfortable <laughs> with or you've... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a surprise to me, frankly, but, you know, you end up, I've ended up doing... I mean, I'm getting to grips with it, put it that way. I mean, it is a big, sort of big old beast to juggle um, because it's so... And what, it's, what just when you think, well, that bit's going okay, something happens over here, you know, there's, there's lots of... There's so many moving parts. Did you think about turning it down when you were elected? <laughs> Well, I think if you... I don't, I don't know what would happen, actually, because if you stand, then people assume you, you'd say yes. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what... There'd be a, a crisis, I think, if you got elected and then said no. I'm sorry, of course, you, you have to stand in the you first instance. You have to stand instance. in the you first instance, you would, you would so you be kind of second, indicate second things. thoughts, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and what... I mean, do you think that your work can be part of your role as PRA. I mean, I would like... I say this, but we, we've been speaking about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, 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 the type of work you make and, and um, your attitude to your work could sort of inform your yeah. attitude to the role of being president. I don't... I mean, what's happened, oddly, is that the, the longer I've been president, the more of a hermit I've become in relation to the work. I've... I don't know, it's almost as if I've retreated. And that I think part of that is that, um, you know, so much of the job is talking about art, advocating for art, talking about art education, advocating for art education, advocating for the work of my fellow academicians, you know, exhibitions for my fellow academicians, exhibitions we should put on as an academy, that I actually think, well, enough. You know, I'm just going to make... I'm just going to... I don't want to... So, so has the studio become, it's become, in some ways, an escape? An or escape or and a haven. And I, I, you know, I don't even show the work to anybody in particular. I just make it and put it away. Well, I should say there are two of Rebecca's works on <laughs> the show are. at the fair at Patrick Hyder's <laughs> stand. Hyder's so stand. anyone who wants to see a work in person and see the surface must go there and, and see that after, after this conversation. Um, I mean, we've been talking for about 45 minutes. I mm. wonder if there are any questions from the audience, whether in person, here in the room, or online. I will look here and see look, if see anything if you, pops up. I don't think there's anything, anything now. Yes, yet. there's a question there's in the front row. And perhaps, if Will, if you wait for the microphone to arrive. Um, thank you so much. Uh, you were talking quite a bit about sort of looking and seeing and taking time to look. Uh, and I was wondering um, how much you think about the audience's looking while you're, while you're creating your works. Um, <laughs> I, th I hope that there might be an audience for what you might call slow, slow work. Um, it's, it's, it's very difficult in the, in the current client. I mean, I think in the digital age, um, to persuade people to slow down. And also, I mean, I, I think my work also um, shows that it's important to see the real artwork because during lockdown, people would occasionally say to me, whether they wanted to cheer me up or not, I don't know, you know, when the Royal Academy was closed, they'd say, well, actually, you know, in the future, everybody will look at everything online. And I used to think, really? Surely not. And of course, you know, work like mine, and I mean, looking at all these beautiful works here, I mean, it's okay to see them online, but we do all want to experience. And I think, above all else, as a viewer, 
you want to have the opportunity to stand a few feet away from the object where the artist stood when they were working on it. And you can't, sadly, you can't do that online. Rebecca, just, just picking that up, I mean, I suppose uh, two questions to follow on. One, one is the extent to which your work has been received and discussed in Japan, mm. um, given that it has been so formational both in that period in the 80s, but also you've gone back to Japan yeah. most years pre-pandemic. So that's the, f uh, that that's the first, first one. Yeah. That one first. Um, well, this is another interesting fact. So because, because I started working like this living in, when I was living in Japan, um, I'd only ever spoken about my... Because by then, you know, I'd been in Japan for five or six years, so I hardly used English at all. I was living in, you know, completely Japanese world. And so I'd only ever spoken about my work in Japanese. And there are some words in Japanese which means that it's really easy to speak about my kind of work. Um, then, of course, I moved back here and I had to speak about this work in English, which still is much more difficult than it is in Japanese. Um, so when I had an exhibition there back in 2019, I think, and that was the first time in ages, and all of a sudden I was in a room speaking about my work in Japanese, and it was sort of like time travel. And there's something about it that makes it click. Because the language that you have for thinking and about your work and the, the, the technical the aesthetic, language. It's the, mm. an aesthetic language. It's an understanding of this aesthetic which just goes without saying. The second question, though, is, is about a public work because in... I'm going to get the date wrong, but, but about 15 years ago, yeah. you created a large architectural installation for St George's, oh, Hospital, St. George's Hospital in Tooting. Yeah. Um, which has thousands of people passing mm. by it every single day yep. and seeing it. And it's partly bamboo panels, panels with, with lights set uh, in, yep. in this long wall in the reception area of the mm. hospital. So I, I just wondered whether, you know, whether, how you thought about the audience for that work. And, and well, that, in many ways, that is the biggest piece of work to come out of my... Um, long-standing obsession with division and Japanese space because when I was first asked by the the arts officer at St George's Hospital they were planning to redevelop the main entrance which is you know it's a major London hospital 10,000 people go in and out every day so it's like a small town in effect and they were going to renovate it and she said I mean she started it with you you know we haven't got any money but what about one of your paintings behind the desk? And so I said to her, because I hate hospitals, um, I said, look, I don't think anybody ever feels better going into a pretty grim hospital space if you've just got a picture behind the desk. It just doesn't help. So how about working with the architect on the whole space? So rather naughtily, we stole the money they'd got to make a 19-metre curved wall and I, as Tom said, I covered it with a combination of, of bamboo veneer, veneered in very different directions, and then um, strips of gla recycled glass lit from behind with LEDs. So the whole aim of the space was so that you could navigate it intuitively, because before it was one of those horrible spaces where you walked in the door, probably in a state of panic, either because you were ill or because you were late or both, and you saw one of those classic 
NHS sign boards with arrows that did that, and you had no idea where to go. So the idea was that people would... And we started outside in the garden with lights, and you would actually find your way in intuitively, quite calmly, and there would be a, an information desk that would tell you where to go. Um, and it was very interesting what it did, because it completely kind of lowered the temperature of that space. And it opened it out in a way, because I worked with sort of some of the pictorial tricks that, you, that, that Japanese picture scrolls work with to widen the corridor. So halfway along, I put more horizontal ones in or something. So mm. as you walked along, you felt that the space opened out and then it closed in again. But those were just A sort of know, baroque, tricks. like you're the, tricks. the Boromini of, of <laughs> well, hospital architecture. Of tooting, yeah. <laughs> um, and 10,000 people do see that every day. And that's, well, uh, it was also very interesting because there's a lot of... You know, people are always very keen to put art in hospitals. And... They assume two things. One is that the most important people in work in the hospital building are patients. The truth is, nowadays, very few people stay in hospital for weeks and weeks and weeks. Most people are in and out in a day now. And so they don't necessarily need... So actually, the people who really need a decent environment are the people who go to work in these hospitals every day. And they also assume... A lot of people who put art in hospitals assume that the work must be jolly... And, of course, that it's not necessarily... You know, not everything mm. in hospitals... It's I not mean, okay. mood, mood lift. It's mood changing, it, mood trans. So we had a lot of discussions about what message, by doing this work on the main entrance, what was the message we were trying to give, not only to people who might come and work there, but also the patients. And in the end, it wasn't, well, hey, this is a fun place to work or whatever. It was... By designing this entrance like this, we've put a huge amount of thought into it. We've done it professionally. We've used beautiful materials. That means that we value mm -hmm. you and everybody that comes to this building. So it was a subliminal message, which was not as simple as, let's put a jolly picture on the but wall I, but and I cheer think everybody that, up. I think that that is an extension of your your practice, the quality of care mm. for, for the, everything yeah. that you do in your works. We have got a question on, oh. online, um, which I found in the chat box, which is a question about how far is the president of the Royal Academy, you're able to extend your influence or, or have a particular influence. In particular, this question is interested in how far you might bring um, a diversity of cultures uh, and ethnicities to the RA mm. um, in terms of what's shown there? What, what sort of well, what power do you have? Do have? Um, well, the good news is that, I mean, um, I mean, as president, I suppose I could issue a diktat, but actually I don't need to issue a diktat because the Royal Academy is doing a huge amount of work um, on this very topic. And I was particularly keen, because obviously all organisations after the Black Lives Matter, when was that? 2020, wasn't it? Um, all organisations were tasked with looking at themselves, or tasked themselves with looking at themselves. And I was very determined that our reaction wouldn't be just something on the website that said, we all know this is terrible and all the rest of it, um, that it needed to be 
meaningful. So since then, we've had various, we've got what we call internally ways in groups, which is looking at different areas of the Royal Academy, how can we broaden our reach, how we can we bring in different kinds of art, how we can bring in different, all sorts of people. So... I'm going to ask well, you a can. far more selfish question, or question more <laughs> about, about ego, egotisms and egos. If you, were, if you were able to curate a, a show in the galleries at the Royal Academy of an Arts, what would you curate? God, now that's really a tough one. What's your instinct? What's my instinct? Um, well, I know, I mean, I know the painting I'd like to, well, I know the screens I would like to have, but they'd never let them out of Japan. And what, and what are they? Well, they're a pair of screens by Hasegawa Tohaku from the 17th century, and they're just so beautiful, but they're so precious. So I'd have them. They have subjects they're on pi them? I've forgotten what the title is, but I call them Lonesome Pine, actually. But they're exquisitely beautiful, um, mostly because he was a master of white space, and very few people on the planet nowadays would have the confidence to leave that much white space. And there he was back in the 17th century. There's a sec another question in the room. Thank you. Hi. Um, I was going to ask about scale in your work. So when you're making a work, mm. do you start off thinking about the scale? Because your work does fluctuate between yeah. larger work and smaller. And is that something that perhaps influenced you in Japan, the scale? Yes, so um, because I work on them flat, so all the canvases are unstretched. So I work leaning across a table. So, so this triptych, for example, has to be a triptych because I can't reach the middle otherwise. Um, so there's all sorts of really tedious practical reasons for why they are the way they are. Um, I tend to... So at the moment, I'm... I'm tr what I've decided I'm going to do is work on a few large pieces each year because what I didn't want to happen was that I would end up, you know, when I am no longer president, I would have a cupboard full of little ones, which is all I'd managed. <laughs> and I just thought that would be too depressing. So I work on large ones. And because of the way I make them, they're all incredibly calculated and measured out. So I have to know exactly what size they're going to end up. So they are a bit calculated in advance. There's a further question here, and then perhaps we'll... Thank you. Thanks. Um, yeah, it was, it was great to hear you both talk. Um, I was just quite interested in the fact that you put your sketchbooks away and you never mm. look at them again. Mm. Um, and I was thinking about you talking about rediscovering photography and, and looking in that kind of way through a lens or through mm. a frame in lockdown um, and obviously if you know when you're going back to Instagram you're, you are seeing those things again yeah. um, and you're going back to them and repeatedly mm. do you think that is having some kind of impact on your your work now um I think the reason I don't look at the sketchbooks again and I, I actually don't look at Instagram again either is that it's that was a moment and I don't particularly want you know so I want the painting moment I will be in when I'm back in the studio. So it's not... The sketchbooks are not really for reference. They're for just capturing that moment and that that 
you know, as the week goes on, the sort of hand-eye coordination gets a bit better, and then it sort of tails off again <laughs> towards the end of the week. <laughs> because again, you see, you're in that strange trajectory, so when you first arrive, you think, oh, there's that mountain again. Oh, yeah, I remember how I did that last year. And you do it again, and you think, well, that's boring. That's how I did it last year. So then you go on an experiment. You go on a little journey, perhaps with a twig that you found, and then you think, well, actually, I'm getting too good at doing that twig now, so I'm getting bored with that. And I'll start again. So there's a trajectory, but each one is just a moment, and when it's over, it's over. And when it's over, it's over. (laughs) So on that note, I'm going to say thank you all for coming. Um, And thank you for those of you watching online. And and thank you, uh, above all, to Rebecca Salter uh, for joining me this evening in conversation. Well, thank you.